More than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBFR Corvallis. It's time for another episode and the first of the year for 2023 of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lisa Hildebrand. And I'm Brian Lynn. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and postdoctoral fellows in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student or a postdoc at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and today we are lucky to be joined by Kalina Fahey, a fifth-year PhD candidate in the School of Psychological Sciences. Welcome, Kalina. Hi, thank you so much. Happy to be here. We are excited to have you in um, the booth today, Kalina. And yeah, as I just mentioned, you are a um, you're in the School of Psychological Sciences. So we figured let's get people acclimated to the different types of psychology. Um, take us through that a little bit, particularly with a focus on what is clinical psychology and what is experimental psychology. Um, yeah, so clinical psychology is basically like someone wants to be a therapist, but they also want to do research. So they're going to go to a specific program where they're going to get lots of training in interventions. Um, and typically, a lot of times the research is more intervention or therapeutically focused as well. Um, experimental psychology is almost in a sense a lot more broad. Um, you can do a lot of different things. For example, I study health psychology, which is studying mental and physical health and how different factors relate to that. Other people study social psychology, cognitive psychology, there's neuropsychology. Um, there's a lot of different types out there that you could research for sure. Right. Not as easy as putting it in two neat boxes as I wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> so you, yeah, as you just mentioned, you are, um, sort of moving down the path of experimental psychology for, for quite a while um, before you came to OSU for your PhD. Um, you were sort of on the clinical psychology track or thought that that's where you were headed, right? Um, yes, I had always thought that I wanted to be a therapist um, and then ended up spending some time being a clinical assessor in my master's program, which is basically where you don't provide therapy, but you're screening people for disorders and it's just it's a lot um it requires people to have an insane amount of empathy but also to be very good at compartmentalizing like in a healthy way so mm -hmm. that you can actually like leave the clients and their situations and even just hearing in an assessment standpoint of the kinds of situations people were going through it was really overwhelming um and i just felt like i still wanted to do something that helped people but could do that 
in a different avenue with research that hopefully addresses health disparities and can improve health and health promotion without having to let it like ruin my day or month or whatever. Yeah, I think it's so impressive how, yeah, I don't know. I, I go to therapy and sometimes I'm like, woof, that was heavy. And then I'm like, oh, my therapist does this maybe eight times in a day. Yeah, sometimes more, which is crazy if they do shorter sessions. I don't, yeah, they're superheroes for yeah. sure. Um, and so you, you started being sort of a little more exposed to the experimental or even research side in psychology in your master's program, which was where? Um, yeah, so I went to San Diego State University. Uh, for anybody out there who wants to go to grad school in psychology, get research experience. I did not. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't really realize until it was too late. And so wasn't really competitive to get into grad school. Had to apply to some master's programs to get research experience and got in there and um, spent two years getting a thesis project completed and just really fell in love with research. Um, It's super fun to problem solve and work on something new every day, uh, which is how I ended up. I applied to clinical programs, but really was more, I knew I was going to end up being a researcher full-time wherever I ended up. Mm. And still ultimately a way of helping people just maybe in a like less direct way, I guess. Right. Cause yeah. Yeah, it is different. And there's the possibility for people who don't go into clinical programs to still do intervention work. It's Mm. just usually more in a collaborative role. Mm. Like I don't do any of this now, but I'm super interested in meditation research and think it's so interesting. And that's something I could do. I would just have to find researchers who are clinical psychologists trained in meditation to partner with, to do those kinds of studies. So there's still the opportunity. You just can't just, you know, run Mm -hmm. free and pretend you're a therapist if you don't have the licensing to to do that, you know. Probably a good thing. Yeah, I I think that's a good um, barrier in place for sure. Um, Well, now that we're all um, (laughs) well-versed in um, the different facets of um, psychology, you are here at OSU. You're in your fifth year. Um, Tell us broadly what your um, dissertation focuses on it's 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 a lot so <laughs> yeah um I know we were talking about it before it's and I'm not I'm still working out how to explain it um basically so I study LGBTQ health disparities um and I'm trying to also move into health promotion but right now I'm most mostly focused on how does stress impact health behaviors for LGBTQ individuals and in general we know that people in the queer community experience poor health outcomes, both mental and physical. Um, One of the ones I'm interested in is substance use. And so this study is basically kind of filling in this niche that we know from correlation research and survey research that stress does relate to substance use in queer communities, but we don't know how that plays out in real time. We just know they're correlated. We don't actually know, like, yes, stress causes substance use. And we can say, you know, we're pretty sure, but until you have the research to back that up, you can't really say with, like, certainty. And so basically what this study is doing is it's taking this other stress paradigm that's been used in a lot of other substance use research and adapting it to see if we can actually look in the lab how minority stress impacts alcohol use in sexual minority cisgender women in this study in particular. Um, And that's very wordy. So basically (laughs) um, what that means is 
Um, the stress paradigm is basically like a guided meditation and there's two conditions. So I ask participants to, um, have a virtual appointment with me and I basically ask them, you know, in the past six months, can you think of a time in which something stressful happened to you because of your queer identity? And then also in the past six months, do you have something, you know, that you did that you found really neutral or relaxing? And I'll go and I'll create these guided meditation scripts. Um, and another research graduate research assistant records the audio. The participants come back to two different sessions in lab. And at one of the sessions, they listen to the stress audio recording and the other, they listen to the neutral recording. And then we ask them a bunch of different questions. We take saliva samples for cortisol. They're wearing a heart rate monitor. Um, we have them do a cognitive task to assess decision making. It's a lot. Um, mm. But basically what we're thinking is that we're really interested in looking at, A, is this paradigm, the stress paradigm, safe to use in minority communities and marginalized communities, specifically because identity-based stressors could potentially be more harmful because mm -hmm. they're targeting our sense of self, right? Mm -hmm. If you're not a, if you're not like caring that much about being a student, you're not going to care that much if you fail a test, right? Even though that's stressful. Mm. But if being queer or, you know, black, Latinx, whatever, if that's important to you, and it probably is, right? That's a sense of self and who you are. Mm -hmm. um, there's a chance that that could cause more harm. And so we just want to make sure that it's safe to use in, in the lab. And then we also want to know, how do those moments that people have in their daily life where they're like being targeted because they're queer, what does that do for their decision making or their health behavior outcomes? And in this instance, it's specifically alcohol. Hmm. Yeah, that was a lot. So hopefully that made sense. <laughs> Pause. It, it made it made a lot of sense. That was a sense that was very eloquent. Um, how did you first get turn uh, like how did you first come across this stress paradigm, which is the personalized guided induction stress paradigm, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, in my uh, psychology of addiction class, um, one of my mentors, Dr. Sarah Dermody, she's not here anymore, taught um, this elective class, and it was great. And we read this research article about some research team that had used it to look at smoking in the lab. Um, mm. And that was really cool. And they actually like brought people in and let them smoke cigarettes after they listened to the audio recordings. <laughs> but that was at Yale and they have a medical center and you know. Oh, we, so they're allowed to do yeah, that? Yeah. We have a vet clinic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> See, and that's what I would have loved to like have people come in the lab and safely let them drink alcohol. But um, I don't think that's within OSU's wheelhouse at this time, so, maybe down the road. Um, that'd be really cool. But one day. Um, yeah, I'd love to do that study someday. But you know, saw this my mentor and I were talking about what I should do for my dissertation um and I just was like well what if we do this like this could be used and it was you know not just like a flashbulb moment there's a lot of conversations but um yeah something that I do think is cool is it was an idea that I had from the get-go like it mm -hmm. wasn't one my mentor gave me um which is always a really cool feeling but obviously the project has been informed with her expertise mm -hmm. what I came up with was very haphazard and I think it's become yeah a project that I think has like methodological rigor mm. now which is cool you were like I like this I want to do that yeah 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 that doesn't always happen um in grad school and so it really I've been very fortunate to have a mentor that's super supportive yeah that's um, awesome but obviously it, it's not as simple as like oh I want to do this I'm going to read this one paper it tells me how to do it I'm going to do it you had to like attend trainings to learn how to you know produce these scripts and all that kind of stuff right yeah um they have a very like expensive paid certification process which i did not do um you don't have to fortunately other researchers are really um forthcoming and generous with their time so 
I've gotten trained from a postdoc who uses the paradigm at Yale. Um, but yeah, I would say I spent over 20 hours just mm -hmm. getting training, practicing. Um, I have friends that are very sharing and, you know, are awesome at letting me create stress scripts from their real lives, you know, <laughs> things like that, um, which, yeah, nobody else saw is just for my practice, but it was really good to do that. Um, yeah, it definitely takes time. Making the scripts takes time. It takes me about an hour to make each one. Mm -hmm. um, it's definitely intensive. But one of the bonuses is that we know we know it's stressful, right? There's mm -hmm. tons of other ways you can elicit stress in the lab. But, like, you don't know if it's actually meaningful stress for the individual. Um, and so this way we're actually seeing, like, we know this stresses them. How does that impact their health? Mm hmm do you find for the like relaxing script, you write a lot of them about people petting their cats? <laughs> <laughs> um, I haven't had any pet ones yet. I think pets have come into some ones, but it wasn't like the main focus. It's It's been like cooking, um, mm -hmm. yard work, stuff like that. Um, you don't want it to be too enjoyable, you know, oh, and okay. like petting a cat would be <laughs> too blissful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're not Let's looking see. for like euphoric states, just like chill. Oh, okay, okay. oh yeah. that yeah. makes Neutral sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no cats then. <laughs> because they lead to ecstasy and yeah. happiness. <laughs> uh, Brian, didn't you have a, a, a little idea? Yeah, so maybe for the listeners, we could well go through one of these scripts a little bit. One of the like neutrally relaxing uh, categories. We won't want to stress anyone out on a Sunday evening. <laughs> yeah, I I know. We, this is off the top of my head, so I can't <laughs> promise that it's great. Um, but yeah, it'll be kind of a mini simulation of what it could be like. Um, if you're driving in a car, don't close your eyes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you're sitting somewhere, um, go ahead and pause and close your eyes. Um, I invite you to take a minute and just take a few very deep breaths in through your nose and out through your mouth. As you breathe in, tense all the muscles in your body. And as you breathe out, let the tension roll away. You are walking on a forest path. Your feet crunch leaves under the ground as you walk. You look up to the sky and see the sun through the leaves and the trees. The smell of pine fills your nostrils. You feel happy. You look down to the path ahead of you. You hear other hikers walking laughing. You feel a connection to them, to the world. It feels good to be here. You never want this walk to end. And feel free to open your eyes and take a minute. <laughs> Yeah, not perfect, um, just because that was off top, the top of my head. But we also make sure that, yeah, it's relevant. So, like, a walk might not be relevant to some people. They might pick something that, you know, they find more relaxing. Like, some people have done, like, a, building a puzzle or something like that, you know. Mm. But I love that. Smell of pine. <laughs> I had, mm -hmm. I, I, I'd never heard of, like, incorporating 
the smell into meditation, but I like, I smell pine. Sorry, listeners. Uh, Kalina's <laughs> going to have to finish her own interview because Brian yeah, and I are nap. too neutral. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for making you do it last minute, but that was awesome. No, yeah, it's all good. I've written enough that I think I can pull a few things here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is basically like the way it was described to me is that you're you're making a movie script. And so, yeah, asking participants, they're always a little mm-hmm. worded out, but I have to interrupt a lot. I'm like, what were you wearing? You know, what's... Mm. How far is the kitchen table from the window? You know, like mm-hmm. I have to know a lot of details and we don't incorporate all of that into the script, but we mm-hmm. do as much as we can. So they really feel like they're there in that moment again, mm-hmm. um, which again, great for the neutral and maybe not so great for <laughs> no, the stress. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's safe. It's been used in a lot of research studies and found to be safe, um, which mm-hmm. is great. And we don't do anything that's like too intense or traumatic on purpose. So mm-hmm. it's not harmful. And you mentioned earlier that um, another graduate um, research assistant helps you once you've written the scripts to record them. Tell the listeners why that is. Why isn't it you if it's your study? Oh, yeah. One thing that was really interesting in this training process that I learned is because I'm spending so much time with these participants and it's really just two hours. But um, if I record the audio recordings myself, apparently my voice could be inherently soothing because they've met me. Um, and in the process of getting, you know, stressful situations from people, you have to be very comforting and reassuring and making sure that they feel comfortable in that space. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a very good chance that hearing me could actually calm them down, which is antithetical <laughs> to the point of the study. So, yeah, definitely don't want people to be too calm, not too stressed, but not too calm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and so you're... Um, Currently, you're you're undertaking these these sessions and this experiment right now, not as we speak, but during this term. So where where in that process are you um, in terms of like participants? Are you almost done? Are you just starting? Um, Yeah, we're about halfway ish through um, collecting data. But yeah, definitely still need participants. We're recruiting through like OSU Today and we have Facebook ads and flying around the community. I'm hoping to be done after this term so I have enough time to analyze the data Mm -hmm. and defend on time. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, we'll see. It's been a long journey. It's been a very interesting recruitment process. Um, Young people in Corvallis have a very specific like drinking pattern and our original. (laughs) What? Yeah. (laughs) No. Are we in a college town? (laughs) Yeah. Football games have no impact. (laughs) Well, and you do see that in young people, that Mm. the drinking's very like all or nothing. And our original Mm. drinking criteria was a little bit more of a like constant. Mm -hmm. um, We were looking for people who are more like constant drinkers, Mm -hmm. whereas that just doesn't fit the the Corvallis mold. And so, yeah, yeah, it was a little bit stop and go. But it seems to be ever since we've uh, got approval to kind of adjust our inclusion criteria. It's really picked up. Yeah. So can you just, um, remind the listeners what the criteria, um, are for participants? Um, and if you fit these and are interested, um, please go to our website, blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, um, and look at our latest blog, which is on um, today's episode about Kalina. And there's a link in there about more information for the study and ways to sign up. But just for anyone listening right now, what, what are those criteria? Yeah, so the first thing is that you have to identify as a member of the queer community. Um, you have to drink alcohol. You have to be age 21 to 60. Um, there's a couple others. I'm blanking because I don't have the flyer in front of me. Uh, <laughs> one that is um, important for this study is that uh, we're also looking for cisgender women in particular, which um, 
is unfortunately a limitation of the study. We have a very, very small sample. I have very little monies to do this study. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it's just very specialized. We also see that in cisgender sexual minority women, their disparities in drinking are a lot higher compared to mm. um, cisgender sexual minority men. I can't speak to the transgender research too much in that context because we haven't made a lot of those comparisons. Mm. Trans health research is growing but still very new. Um, but yeah, the goal is to hopefully take this and do it with the LGBTQ community at large. Um, yeah, so right now, cisgender women who drink alcohol and identify as queer. Right. As you said, this this study is sort of like a proof of concept. This personalized guided induction stress paradigm has never been used in this way before. So, right. Yeah, it's been adopted to look at how people respond to like drug situations and food situations, but it's never been adopted as far as I can tell to identity stress. And so, yeah, I'll be really interested to see how our participants feel about it. We asked them at the end of the study um, through a couple surveys like do you see this being used for research? Would you like it to be used in research? Mm. Um, and I think that's really important because, yeah, if it's not appropriate, then we shouldn't be using it in this population. Mm -hmm. But if it is, then, yeah, we could hopefully take it to, you know, looking at LGBTQ substance use disparities. You could also look at race and ethnicity. You could look at other marginalized identities as well and how stress impacts them. Mm. Yeah, one thing I had never thought about until our our interview together was the way that science is kind of antithetical to LGBTQ as a community in science because the community tends to kind of say all or none. This happened, was it 2008, where there's some um, laws being passed for, like, gay marriage, but, you know, there's some of the same extensions weren't being passed for, like, trans rights, and so we're like, no, we want all rights or no rights, and the HRC campaign got under a lot of flack for it, mm. for supporting some bills that only, like supported like gay and lesbian identities um rather than like the whole community and so but in science you're always like trying to narrow it down like mm -hmm. well, measure one variable at a time mm -hmm. uh, to make sure you're not seeing like co-effects yeah but they want to say we're, we're, we're interested in studying like lgbt identities and we're going to narrow it down to one variable at a time because that's a scientific process and then the queer community is like no all of us right we, mm -hmm. we're um this it's really interesting but it's important even though it always feels bad to be like as a group I mean any historically excluded group you know it feels bad to be excluded from within that group and especially like, the trans community gets that a lot mm -hmm. um so no I'm sure it felt bad to see cis women only but it's also important to data to have data that's not messy and and picking up something it shouldn't yeah it's, it's mm -hmm. interesting I don't know it's such a push and pull and we did receive very constructive but very critical feedback from some trans students at OSU and it was you know very hard in the moment you mm -hmm. bristle you feel awful and I'm still so thankful that that happened because it taught me a lot about how the trans community feels about research at OSU um, I think they like they want to be included and they mm -hmm. want research being done on them and that's great and I am working on some other projects but also, it just taught me a lot about like we make so many assumptions, like you were saying in science about like this is the right way to do things. Um, and one thing we learned is like, like it even helps to just have a QR code on your fly, like screening flyer being like, why do we have this inclusion criteria? Mm. And the QR code goes to like a special explainer of like, like this is all the limitations we have mm -hmm. in this study that just made some of these decisions we wanted to make impossible to make. And then also it gave me an opportunity to say, like, I am working on other trans health projects. Like, I promise you, I'm not just like 
Like, I don't want to pay mm-hmm. attention to you or think like your identity or experience isn't valid because mm-hmm. I 100% think it is and should be examined. Um, so, yeah, and that seems to be really helpful. I've received feedback from people that really appreciate that, that that like helps provide context when people who know nothing about research. Like we, we can't just say, well, this is the way we've always done it. So you mm-hmm. just have to accept that this is how our research goes. Like right. we can also provide context of like, here's how we got to the, this decision and why. Yeah, experimental science is so hard as as the ecologist in the booth where it's like whales will do what they do and I have to understand it after <laughs> when you're conducting experiments. It's like I must control for everything in order to say that this related to that. Otherwise, I wouldn't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It could be that one thing you didn't think to, right. to pull out. I mean, that's <laughs> what's skewing your data. Yeah. 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 Really. Um. Well, so um, on that uh, on that experiment, we wish you luck for Thanks. for <laughs> the rest of the term. Hopefully, you get the uh, the number of participants that you need, and yeah, that it is this um, you know sort of a a good solid proof of concept, and that it can be um, expanded to. I mean, yeah, and that's the other thing: science. It's always it's always funding. It's always funding limited, mm-hmm. right? To like not be able to immediately do a a larger scale, um, yeah, a larger scale study. Yeah. The goal is to get funding for a grant at some point down the road once I have a job. So we'll see. Yeah. I'm curious too, just on funding, given the like the way that trans people have found themselves in the middle of a political debate, mm-hmm. does that affect the ability to get funding for those kinds of studies? That's a really good question and one I don't think I have the answer to because funding mechanisms for um graduate students are like always training. So it's not always so much about the project. It's about like, did you write a really good training plan for yourself? And so, yeah, like I I did apply for a grant. Unfortunately, didn't get one. Um, But it was partly the project they just felt was really difficult. And they felt it was too lofty, which is funny. It's so specific. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I also really do a lot of my funding, like seeking out funding through NIAAA, which is National Institute of Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse, which will probably change the name because those aren't preferred terms for substance use anymore. Mm. Um, but like NIMH, which is National Institute of Mental Health, I think they've had LGBTQ grants, but because I haven't like looked into it, um, I'm not sure. I would hope they have funding available for trans health stuff with all the all the laws that are being proposed or even passed right Mm -hmm. like it's it's not great right now um in Oregon we're very insulated and very fortunate um but yeah I'll be very curious to see the unfortunate and probable harm that's going to be caused by like the current socio-political climate for sure Mm. um well we've um talked a lot about um sort of just one part of your dissertation so far because you're also exploring ways in which um religious and spiritual identities can sort of impact the stress that impacts the health yeah uh, <laughs> i like the way you said that <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was weirdly said but right right yeah okay. no you're totally right yeah um yeah and it's not 
Yeah, so the experiment is like my dissertation, but then the crazy thing about like psychology grad school is you're like, work, at least I am. I know other people do this too, but I'm working on like four other projects at the same time because I can't say no. Oh, they're not other chapters in your dissertation? No, yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay, yeah. wow. I thought that these were, it was like chapter one, two, three, which would all be very ambitious, but wow. No, yeah. See, I didn't explain that well, I think. Okay. Um, no, I have all these other side projects that I work on at the same time, which is great and awful at the same time <laughs> um but yeah basically that was the how I got into LGBTQ health research in the first place is I went to an undergraduate uh, private undergraduate Christian university and um had so many queer friends growing up and even had queer friends at school who were not it, having the same college experience that everyone was having um, in part because of some of the like student conduct policies at my school and things like that weren't very, I'm downplaying it. They were exclusive. I was mm. going to say they weren't very inclusive. They mm. were just exclusive. Yeah. <laughs> Let's call it what it is. Yeah. Um, and so I started like wondering because we know from research that religion is really beneficial for a lot of health outcomes. People who are religious, um, live longer, have lower chances of like heart disease. Mm. Um, they're less likely to use substances. They're more likely to have in certain religious contexts, better diet, like all this stuff. Um, but so much of that research is just on the general population. And it's very likely that religion's like not a positive experience for everybody, especially in religious communities that are very unaccepting of LGBTQ people. And so I got into that research of like, well, is, is religion great for everyone? Because mm. um, I was suspecting not. And my master's thesis, we actually found that in sexual minority individuals, who were religious, um, they had higher blood pressure than sexual minority individuals mm. who were less religious. Mm. Um, and that's the opposite of what you see in the general population, right? So mm. there's potentially some underlying stress impacts there. Mm. Um, I've also am working on papers now looking at like sexual health outcomes um, and then also just looking at religious and spiritual identity and if that varies by uh, sexual and gender identity, like do we all experience religion in the same way? Mm -hmm. um, and it's looking like, no, it's looking at least in one paper I worked on sexual minority youth. And again, I want to keep talking about sexual minority, but it's because they don't have gender identity a lot of times in surveys, mm -hmm. um, which is mm -hmm. where a lot of this research has come from. It's like other people's big data sets. Mm -hmm. And then I use them to answer my own research questions. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we basically found that in youth, um, sexual minority youth, tend to be more spiritual than mm. straight youth, um, which is very interesting and wasn't necessarily like expected. Mm -hmm. And I don't really know what to make of that. Um, but it's possible, right, that like spirituality might be the key to like understanding improving health outcomes in LGBTQ individuals who want to be spiritual, mm -hmm. right? Maybe you can like disentangle religious and spiritual identity. If religion's causing harm, and spirituality is more like one's in touchness with the divine. Maybe that can be an avenue to like improving health outcomes, providing a sense of community, all those kinds of things. Mm. Yeah, you had mentioned that it was actually quite hard. You did um, sort of for one of these side projects, a systematic review to look at, um, uh, I believe it was substance use in in trans youth. Yeah, yeah. But that that. And then trying to link that to spirituality or religion, but that you were finding it like many studies don't account for all those things or include that in their data. So it was hard to do. Yeah. So that systematic review is just looking at like transgender 
substance use broadly, mm. not necessarily like linking it to religion. Um, but that is something I would be interested in doing at mm. some point. A lot of the big data sets don't ask about gender identity. Um, mm. One of the ones that I use for my master's thesis and I've continued to use to answer some questions, they don't have any questions about gender identity. Mm. And their sexual identity question is problematic in its own right. Um, mm. in the, it's almost like a Kinsey scale kind of way of asking it. Um, which isn't really how people endorse sexual identity, right? Like I've, I've never heard anyone in real life be like, well, I'm mostly heterosexual, right? Like that's not, but that's a response option. And mm. so, um, but that's something you see in these big data sets uh, when researchers are like, well, we want to look at these variables. Um, but we know like that this is going to go out to, you know, like 11,000 people, for example, there's a data set out there that has done that let's get all these other measures and throw them in this. They don't really like think about Mm. the way they ask the questions or what questions they should ask. Um, And so if you want to study LGBTQ health and religion, um, it's almost impossible to find a data set that does both. And I've almost never seen a data set that has religion, gender identity and sexual identity Mm. Um, just because yeah, a lot of surveys, especially in kids, they don't ask about gender identity. Um, a lot of times it varies state by state. There's mm-hmm. really famous data set, the youth, youth Risk Behavior Survey, and states can decide whether or not they want to include gender identity measures in it. Mm. So missing a huge portion of the U.S. in terms of, like, tapping into, like, trans health research, especially in kids. Mm. And if you've ever taken a survey and wondered, why do they need to know my religion or my gender identity? Just think about these grad students out there. Yeah. <laughs> Looking for this data, <laughs> wanting to suss out the, these yeah. trends <laughs> and fill it out. Yeah. <laughs> that is an excellent point, Brian. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, on that funny note, um, <laughs> we have basically come to the end of our of our interview. Um, Kalina, I have I have learned a lot um through uh, talking to you, through hearing about your research. Um, Thank you so much for coming on the show, but it's not time for you to go yet (laughs) because we have three traditions on our show. Um, The first of which is uh, we would like you to tell us what the favorite thing about um, your research is. Um, It's always different, right? One day you're like writing a paper, the next day you're looking over data um, and that's the best part, but yeah, I, I, love, I love the analyzing part. It's so fun. Um, but yeah, it's research is so fun because you're you're doing something different every day, or you're moving on a new project and you're answering a new question and you're learning something new. Like I've learned something new, I think, in every single project I've worked on, and that's just great. So it's learning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for life, it's great. That's yeah, a great place to be. If yeah, that's what you like. Uh, awesome. Our second. Tradition is for a piece of advice and who the advice is for. It could be for a former or future self or a student or a cat. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think it's for like anybody that wants to go to grad school or anybody in grad school right now um, because I'm almost done. And so there's probably people out there who are, you know, still in the still in the, you know, baby phase first year. it's amazing and you love it and you're here because like it's what you want to do take breaks it's not the most important thing Mm -hmm. like making friends or like having a community 
um, or finding like hobbies that you love, like that's honestly more important and it makes the work more enjoyable, mm. right? Take If you can take nights and weekends off, like that's been one of the biggest game changers for me is mm. that like I have working hours mm-hmm. and I actually enjoy what I do so much more now and I feel like I actually get more done because I'm happy to be there and happy to do it. Mm. Just out of curiosity, did you did you follow that from the get-go or was it like a point you had to reach at some point in grad school where you're like, oh, I need to do these things for my mental health? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it was it was finding a partner who mm. um, we're now married and he has paid a normal job, mm. you know, and so like <laughs> like he's off on nights and weekends. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, shoot, I guess I need to like actually spend time with this person <laughs> like when they're free. Like, um, and it just it, but it's like created so many more healthy boundaries in my work life I still have to work on weekends every now and then like right now with data collection I'm very available for participants so Mm -hmm. I can get as many as I can Mm -hmm. um I had two today you know um Mm -hmm. but yeah uh other than that like I try to set flexible boundaries for sure nice I think that's great advice Um, And the third and final tradition is that you get to pick your outro song. So uh, tell tell the people what you have chosen and why and why can be because it's a bop. Oh, yeah. I was like, (laughs) I don't know if I want to throw my my fandom under the bus. Um, This song is for the girls by Haley Kiyoko. And it's because it's a queer love song and it's just fantastic. But also it's a reference to The Bachelor, which is a guilty pleasure of mine. (laughs) Watched when taking nights off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Again, Kalina, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, and for all you listeners out there, this is For the Girls by Haley Kiyoko. Ten out of ten, all in a line. The air sweet when we're passing by. Yeah, ooh. It has a Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamad. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. Thanks again for listening, and stay curious, my friends.